0: Well, as that video reminded us, uh, we are starting a brand new series of sermons today that we're calling Help My Unbelief. Help My Unbelief. And what we're going to be doing as a church family over the next seven weeks, uh, this is going to last about a month and a half, uh, we're going to be looking at difficult questions of faith, tough questions of faith. Now, we saw and we heard the questions that we'll be looking at in the bumper video, but here they are once more, just in case we missed them. I know there's a lot. Uh, number one, Why are Christians hypocrites? Number two, is free will worth all the suffering? Number three, isn't the Bible full of myths? Number four, why would an all-powerful God require prayer? Number five, are we allowed to question God? Number six, how does a Christian make sense of other religions? And then finally, number seven, why didn't God save my loved one from dying? So really easy questions, right? Really simple questions. They're not easy, they're not simple, but they are important questions, aren't they? They're critical questions, worthwhile questions. And they're also questions that I think come from a place of wanting to make sense of our faith. Uh, I remember hearing a story about Daniel Aldridge, who for a while served as the chancellor of a university in California. Well, one time back in 1986, he was giving the commencement address And in that address, um, he told a story about a graduate from the university. And what this graduate had done is he had sent his diploma that he had received in the mail uh, to Daniel Aldridge with a letter stating that he was returning his diploma. Despite all those years of study, all the money that he spent in tuition, he was returning his diploma because it hadn't enabled him to get a job as he had expected. And so what Aldridge did is he sent the diploma back to the young man with a letter reminding him what the purpose of a university is. The purpose of a university, he told him, is not to guarantee you the victory. The purpose of a university is to equip you for the challenges of life. And that's a model of faith too. That faith is not about having the answers given to us on a silver platter in an easy way. Faith is about asking those tough questions, those difficult questions that we named just a moment ago, and then wrestling with God and wrestling with the scriptures, um, trying to figure out what it means to be a follower of Christ. And and doing these things, that's how we grow. That's how we come to embody a faith that really honors and pleases God. So with all that in mind, the question that we're going to start with this morning as we kick off this new series is this. It's up here on the screen. Let's say this together on the count of three. One, two, three, go. Why are Christians hypocrites? Why are Christians hypocrites? You ever wonder that before? I wanna begin this conversation by acknowledging that this is a worthwhile question, as we said just a moment ago, because unfortunately, folks, that's the general perception of Christians nowadays in the 21st century, particularly from younger people, that by and large, those of us who identify as Christian, we tend to be seen as hypocrites. Um, There was a book that came out back in 2007, and so this would have been 15 years ago, and it shocked a lot of people. It surprised a lot of people. Uh, we see it up here on the screen. The book was entitled "Unchristian." The subtitle was, "What a New Generation Thinks of Christianity and Why It Matters." Unchristian, what a New Generation thinks of Christianity and why it matters. anybody ever heard this heard of this book before? Or maybe seen it in bookstores. If you're interested, you can find it in bookstores or Amazon.com. I'm sure sells it. But the book was written by two authors. David Kinnaman, and Gabe Lyons. And at the time, both of these men were researchers with the Barna Group. And if you're not familiar with the Barna Group, the Barna Group is a Christian polling firm that tries to make sense of um, Christianity in America and what people believe and what they think. Well, these researchers wanted to find out, and this was in the mid-2000s, they wanted to find out why young people were leaving the church. And by young people, they meant those between the ages of 16 and 29. I'm sorry if you're beyond 29, you're not considered young, at least according to this uh, you know, um, definition. But they wanted to understand why these young people were leaving the church and choosing not to identify as Christian, even if they still believed in God, maintained their belief in God. And so the survey was conducted and the results were intriguing. They found that for the most part, the reason young people were leaving the church, it wasn't so much because of theology, or teaching, or doctrine. There was some of that, but that wasn't the bulk of it. Rather, the main reason had everything to do with how Christians behave. They said that Christians were judgmental, too political, too sheltered, too focused on culture wars. And you guessed it, they said that we were hypocritical. In fact, 47 percent almost half of the young adults who were surveyed, and I think we have this up here on the screen, 47%, almost half of the young adults surveyed said that Christians are hypocritical, and for that reason, they wanted nothing to do with the church. And if we think about this, it's not hard to imagine why they would assume this or why they would think this. Because folks, we see displays of religious hypocrisy all over the place, don't we? We see these displays from far away, like when a well-known preacher is found to be embezzling money or doing something corrupt, something illegal. But we also see these displays up close, right in front of our faces. I remember when I was in college, I took a class called the History of Jazz, and it was a really fun class. It traced the development of jazz music in our nation, and one of the classes I enjoyed most. And the professor told us the very first day, he said, this is going to be an easy class. If you put in the work, put forth the study time, you're gonna get an A, you're gonna get the grade that you desire as long as you work hard. Well, I'll never forget during one of the final exams. Now I should say that the class was held in an auditorium. It was not held in a traditional classroom, it was in an auditorium, and so it was big, it was large, there were no windows, uh, it was easy to spread out. Well, during one of the final exams, I look over and what's going on? There are students, they have their books open on the ground because the professor couldn't see them. And they were cheating on that test. And what made that action even more distasteful is that those same students who were cheating, I saw them later on that night at a campus ministry worship service, raising their hands in glory and praise to God. And you better believe that non-Christians on campus noticed that. In fact, my roommate, my first year of college was one of them. My roommate freshman year, he was not a Christian. Didn't go to church. He knew that I wanted to be a pastor because I had received my call to ministry when I was 16. And so I went to college knowing that I wanted to be a minister. And so we would have some interesting conversations late at night in our dorm room. And he would frequently comment to me about the hypocrisy he saw from people on campus who claimed to follow Jesus. They said they followed Jesus, but their lives and their actions didn't match up with that claim. And that's the definition of hypocrite, isn't it? Nowadays, we say that a hypocrite is a person who, what, says one thing and what? Does another. That's the textbook definition of hypocrisy. Person who says one thing does another. But in Jesus' day, 2,000 years ago, the word hypocrite actually had a different meaning. In Jesus' day, hypocrite was a theater word that was used in reference to actors or performers. And so in the Greco-Roman world of which Jesus was a part, theater was the main form of entertainment. Think about this. There were no movie theaters back then. Uh, There was no television back then, no Netflix, no Hulu, and a lot of people didn't know how to read. And so if they wanted to be entertained, they would go to the theater. And a hypocrite was an actor, somebody who would wear a mask, put on a persona of something they weren't, and then they would play the part. And so what Jesus did in his ministry is he picked up on this understanding, this definition of hypocrisy. And in Matthew's gospel, He used it 23 times. How many times? 23 times. 23 times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus used this word in reference to the religious leaders because Jesus saw the religious leaders as play-acting when it came to their faith and how they lived out their spirituality, their commitment to God. And so with that in mind, listen to what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 6. This is part of his Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount begins in Matthew 5, goes all the way to Matthew 7. It's the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached. Jesus says, when you give to someone in need, don't do as thee, let's say this word together, hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. And when you pray, don't be like thee, hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. And when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled, so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that is the only reward they will ever get. Now, to be clear, Jesus' gripe with the religious leaders has nothing to do with spiritual practices. It has nothing to do with spiritual practices. In fact, the practices that Jesus highlights here, giving money to the poor, praying, fasting, these are good practices, aren't they? These are, these are worthwhile practices. All of us as Christians, we should be engaging in these practices. we followers of God, we should be doing these things. Rather, the problem, according to Jesus with the religious leaders, is that they weren't being sincere as they incorporated these practices in their journey with God. They were not being sincere as they incorporated these practices in their journey with God. They were putting on this big show, this big performance, so other people would see them, take notice of them, clap their hands, praise them, give them a high five. I'm not sure if they gave out high fives back then, but, you know, something like that. Uh, They were basically actors who were just playing the part. And unfortunately... That's the perception that people have today of Christians. I'm sorry if this doesn't flatter you, but that's the perception that people have today of us as Christians. They say that we're just actors. We're fake. We're phony. We're not sincere. We're disingenuous. Yeah, we go to church. Yeah, we pray. Yeah, we read the Bible. Yeah, we do all these religious things, but so what? We also cheat on tests. We cut people off in traffic, and then we use a very specific gesture to tell those people what we think of them, that they're number one, right? We're rude to servers at the restaurant. I had a friend in college who was a server, and she told me the crowd that she hated to deal with was the after church crowd, because they were some of the rudest people, she said. And they also hardly ever tipped. And so listen, if you got to eat today, please make sure that you tip your server very well, and that you're nice to that person. And sometimes we can be obnoxious to people who don't see things our way. I mean, if that's your perception of a Christian and you're not a Christ follower, then why would you want to become one? I'm reminded of this quote by Brennan Manning who passed away back in 2013. I hope to meet him one day. In fact, I expect to meet him one day in heaven. Uh, He was a great spiritual writer. Uh, He said this, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Folks, the world is watching us. And it's safe to say that they're not always impressed by what they see. And if I could be especially honest this morning, I don't blame them. Because I'm not always impressed by what I see. Especially when I look in the mirror. From me. Um, Hannah and Noah, uh, the children who I never talk about, are uh, twins. Uh, actually, I do talk about them quite a lot, but they're going to be four years old later on this month, uh, on the 22nd of January, and so we look forward to, to celebrating their birthday. Now, I know I, I do talk about Hannah and Noah a whole bunch, but I don't think I've shared with you that when Hannah and Noah were born, they were actually premature. They were not supposed to be born in January. They were supposed to be born on March 15th, just the day after my birthday. And so they came about two months early. And for that reason, as soon as they were born, they had to be transported to the NICU, uh, the neonatal intensive care unit. And what made all that even more complicated, messy for us, is that the NICU that they were sent to was an out-of-network hospital. Do you see where this is going? They were born in an in-network hospital, but then they were sent by that hospital to an out-of-network NICU. Now eventually the insurance company covered everything, right? But it took a lot of headache to get there. So I remember one day I went to the mailbox and opened it up and I see this bill from the hospital and I simply could not wait, so I opened it up right away and I almost had to be hospitalized when I look at the number because my heart pretty much fell out of my chest. It was this astronomical number tens of thousands of dollars, way beyond a deductible, and I knew that it was inappropriate. And so I, I go inside the house, and I call the hospital, and the hospital person said to me, well, Mr. Jones, you got to take that up with the insurance company. So I said, all right. Hang up the phone. I called the insurance company, and you know what they said to me? Mr. Jones, you need to take that up with the hospital. And I said, you ever been there before? I said, I'm not doing this. I'm not going to be the middle person between the hospital, the insurance company. So I got a hospital representative on the phone. I got an insurance representative on the phone. We spent about 45 minutes to an hour talking. And finally, it was all cleared up. And the hospital said to me, you are not responsible for that bill. Just throw it away. Discard it. Don't worry about it. And then I thought, okay, we're done. This is all over. I am so naive. Another month later, I go to the mailbox. I should have stopped checking the mail at that point. But I go to the mailbox, another bill from the hospital, and so I open it up, and again, this astronomical number. And I was fed up, and so I immediately called the hospital, and I was talking to this person, and it seemed as if this person was telling me that I didn't understand my insurance plan that I would be responsible for that bill. Well, I wasn't going to take that or handle that. And so I began to get rude. I talked over this person. And uh, I got super defensive. And then finally, toward the end of the call, um, she told me I wasn't going to be responsible. And we had cleared everything up, but I wasn't too happy about my demeanor. And so when I hung up, I felt convicted by the Holy Spirit. And I thought to myself, you know, this person probably deals with angry people all day and I just made her day that much worse. I am so glad that she doesn't know I'm a Christian, let alone what I do for a living. (laughs) There's hypocrisy in me. I don't always walk the walk or talk the talk. But if we're honest, there's hypocrisy in all of us, isn't there? As human beings, we get mad. We lose our temper. We say things that we later regret. And so maybe, in fact, this is the case, an important first step when it comes to combating hypocrisy in the church is to admit that we're all hypocrites to some degree. Somebody say, I'm a hypocrite. I didn't hear the enthusiasm there. <laughs> I'm a hypocrite. We all are. That was the problem with the religious leaders in Jesus' day. It's not simply that they weren't being sincere as they practiced their faith, it's that they refused to recognize their own struggles with sin. That's why Jesus went on to say these words in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a pretty familiar passage. Jesus says, And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. There's that word again 23 times in this gospel. Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. The religious leaders back then put themselves on a spiritual platform above everybody else. They thought so highly of themselves, they thought so well of themselves, that they were blind to their own struggles with sin. We see this time and again in the Gospels. Remember the story of the woman who was caught in adultery in John chapter 8? The people had their stones in hand. They were just about to stone this person because she had violated the law of Moses. And what did Jesus say? Let the person who has no sin cast the first stone. Jesus had to remind the people. He had to remind the religious leaders in particular that they too were sinners. And that's what we need to recognize as we combat hypocrisy in the church, that we ourselves are sinners. We're imperfect. We screw up. We mess up. Maybe our sin looks different than somebody else's, but we still sin. The Apostle Paul said that I am the chief of all sinners. All of us should say that I am the chief of all sinners. I am the chief of all hypocrites. I am the chief of all screw-ups. And folks, let me tell us something else. When people outside the church hear us as Christians not making excuses for our sin or ignoring our sin, but actually owning up to it, they'll find that to be a breath of fresh air. And that book that I mentioned, which again, if you uh, want to read it, you can find it um, in stores or online. And that book that I mentioned, Unchristian What a New Generation Thinks of Christianity and Why It Matters. The authors tell the story about this pastor named Josh, who served the church in Los Angeles, California. And Pastor Josh and his leadership team recognized that, for the most part, there were no young people at their church because of the negative perceptions that were out there of Christians. And they were located in a community that had lots of young people, and they wanted to change all that. So in April time, they decided to do a different kind of sermon series. Pastor Josh had to convince his leaders to actually do the sermon series because at first they were not on board, they thought that it was too controversial, but they decided to do it anyway. The series was called Confessions of a Sinful Church. The series lasted for five weeks, and it involved confessing sins that the church universal has committed over the past 2,000 years. These were the sermon titles. Apology number one, we're sorry for our self-righteousness and hypocrisy. Apology number two, we are sorry for our endorsement of slavery because unfortunately there were Christians during the Antebellum period who supported slavery. One of my assignments when I was in seminary was to read sermons from preachers who had used the Bible to support slavery. Apology number three, we are sorry for our mistreatment of LGBTQ individuals. Apology number four, we're sorry for the medieval crusades. And then apology number five, we're sorry for saying that the earth is flat. Because there were Christians. Um, you remember Copernicus? He was excommunicated from the church because he had said that the sun instead of the earth was the center of the universe. So historically there have been Christians, not all Christians, but some Christians opposed the science. Well, after they had planned out the sermon series, what the leadership team did next was they put together postcards advertising the series, and they, they passed them out at the local college campus. And you know what happened? People who previously wanted nothing to do with the church, they came to the church by the dozens. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, would you rather go to a church where the people are self-righteous, self-righteous, where the people are not acknowledging their own sin, always pointing out other people's sin? Or would you rather go to a church where the people are bold enough, courageous enough to confess their own sin? Not just their sin as individuals, but their sin as a body. Because the fact is, the Bible does talk about corporate sin. Corporate sin is a reality. And we are a part of the church universal. That's what we affirm when we say the Apostle's Creed. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Catholic means universal. We're saying that I believe in the universal church, the church that has existed um, since Jesus started it. And the church universal, unfortunately, has not always gotten it right. We have gotten it wrong occasionally. And so instead of ignoring this or um, making light of it, trivializing it, let's confess it. If a hypocrite is somebody who puts on a show, then the opposite of a hypocrite is somebody who's transparent. And people are drawn to transparency, aren't they? People like transparency. But you know what else people like? You know what else people are drawn to? They're not drawn to those who make them feel small. They're drawn to those who make them feel valued and important, as Jesus made people feel. You ever wonder why those with bad reputations flock to Jesus so much? I mean, they were always around Jesus. Jesus could hardly walk uh, and, and get away from them because Jesus didn't make them feel insignificant like other people did, particularly the religious leaders. Instead, he made them feel important. Check out what it says here in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It says tax collectors and other notorious sinners. Do we have any notorious sinners in worship today? tax collectors, and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. And so Jesus' association with sinners was more than just saying hello when he saw them on the street. Even the religious leaders would do that much. It involved real friendship. Jesus would sit down with them He would break bread with them. He would eat with them. In the ancient world, eating with somebody was the most intimate form of fellowship. It meant that you accepted that person, that that person was okay in your book. And that was a risky thing to do back then because it also meant that that person's reputation would rub off on you. And listen, I'm sure the people that Jesus hung out with, they weren't necessarily pretty. They were rough around the edges. They cursed, they swore, they got drunk. They didn't observe appropriate sexual boundaries. But Jesus didn't focus on those things. It's not that those things didn't matter. But Jesus wanted people to understand that, above all, they were children of God. They had a place in God's family. Folks, we in the church, and I include myself in this category as much as I do anybody else, we in the church need to do a better job with this and follow Jesus' lead. And when we do, the people whom we're called to reach, they won't see us as hypocrites. They'll see us as approachable, relatable, humble. They'll be drawn to our community where they'll find their lives transformed by the risen Jesus. Scott Sauls um, serves as the senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Well, one Sunday morning, uh, they had this woman who visited the church. She had never been there before. She was not a church-going person. Her name was Janet. And Janet didn't come by herself. She came with her two little boys who were nursery age. And so she gets to the church, and she drops them off in the nursery. Then she went to the service and enjoyed the service. Well, afterwards, she went to go pick up the kids from the nursery. And one of the nursery workers pulled her aside and gently told her that there had been some problems that day. Uh, That's never what a parent wants to hear. Hopefully Amanda and I don't hear that later on when we pick up our kids from nursery. But that's what Janet heard. Apparently her boys had picked fights with the other children and then her one son had taken a bunch of toys that belonged to the church and just broke them all. Well, much to the nursery worker's surprise, right there in front of all the parents, all the children, Janet just started to rip into her kids verbally. She yelled, yelled. She screamed, and in the midst of all the yelling and screaming, she said a four-letter word that starts with S. And immediately, she was ashamed and embarrassed. She grabbed her kids, and she got out of there. Nobody could even say goodbye. And everybody assumed, we're not going to see Janet again. And they probably wouldn't have. But the very next day, the nursery worker who had talked to Janet asked the church office for her information, and they gave it to her. And unbeknownst to the pastor, She sent a note to Janet. This is what the note said. Dear Janet, I'm so glad that you and your boys visited our church. Oh, and about that little exchange, when you picked them up from the nursery, let's just say that I found it so refreshing that you would feel freedom to speak with an honest vocabulary like that in church. I am really drawn to honesty, and you are clearly an honest person. I hope we can become friends. You know what happened? Janet and that nursery worker became friends. Janet came back to the church that next Sunday. And the Sunday after that, 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 and pretty soon Janet became the director of the nursery. (laughs) Who would have thought? Later on, Pastor Scott Sauls found out that that first Sunday when Janet came, When she said that four-letter word, she was actually a recovering heroin addict who was trying so hard to put her life back together. And the whole reason she came back is because that nursery worker chose to accept Janet as she was. It didn't mean that there weren't some things that Janet had to work on. Janet had to work on some things just like we all have things that we need to work on. But above all, she made sure that Janet felt important. And by doing so, she gave her an avenue for encountering Jesus. And so, folks, let's give people avenues for encountering Jesus. That's what it's all about. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for that nursery worker whom you used in such a mighty way to reach out to Janet. This beautiful child of you, whom you created and put together for a relationship with yourself. God, please forgive us. Please forgive me for our hypocrisy, for those times and those moments when we don't always practice what we preach. God, set us free, liberate us, and please empower us that we would be led to just be transparent, to be real about who we are, to not put on a show or put on a performance but instead just to be our authentic selves, flaws and deficiencies included, so that people would be drawn to us. And by doing so, they would feel important and find their lives changed by you. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, the one who ate with sinners. Amen.